Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. And welcome to season four. I had not planned to take a full two months off between seasons, but here we are, two months later. And something pretty amazing happened in this two months between seasons. In the world of community radio, you do your show and just hope that some people are listening. I've spent years making radio shows this way. It is really good in that you do your show and whoever was listening at the time is it. It's gone. There's no lasting record. Mistakes get lost in time and you move on. There's no pressure to get it perfect. But there's also no way to measure it aside from audience feedback and interaction. In the world of podcasting, you do get to see how many people are listening or downloading your episodes. I try not to track this too obsessively, though it is a bit addictive, much like chasing social media hits. On this extended break between seasons, I was doing a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff for the podcast, and I did check in to see how much activity there was every now and then. While I'm not providing fresh content, the existing shows still tick over slowly as people find them and have a listen. And funnily enough, it was during this period of inactivity that I watched the numbers climb very slowly and tick over the 10,000 download mark. And that is quite a milestone. So I just want to say thank you very much for listening. It's amazing to think that people around the world are listening to these stories from my small town in central Victoria. Now, I don't know how many of you listening are subscribed to the Saltgrass email list. You can do that via saltgrasspodcast.com. But if you are, you'd know that season four was going to involve stories from a little bit further afield than just my hometown. You'd also know that we had a big trip to Western Australia planned from which I was hoping to bring home a bunch of stories from a group called Desert Discovery. But alas, as our nation is not very well vaccinated, we have had to shut our state borders once again as a new wave of COVID-19 cases started spreading from Sydney and then around the rest of Australia. So now I don't know what season four will look like. Maybe it was foolish to even say my plans out loud in the current environment, but (laughs) there you go, I did, and now it's all changed. Regardless, there are still plenty of stories from this region to explore, and today's episode is one of them. So I'm going to be speaking with a local ecologist, Carl Just. Carl is a guy I've known for about 15 years. He was good friends with a housemate of mine back in Melbourne, and then a few years later we found ourselves living in the same small town. As with so many of these shows, I interview someone I have known around town for a while. I don't know them very well, but I have an inkling that they're doing some interesting things. And it's not until I sit down and start talking in depth with them for this show in the interview that I just I get to see just how interesting they are. So Carl is an ecologist and what made me want to talk to him is that he actually knows what the Australian saltgrass plant is and what it does in the environment. And from that topic, we end up talking about butterflies, ants and the very nature of nature. As ever, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that saltgrass is produced on Jara country. Jara country is the traditional home of the Jajawarong people who have been custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Salt. 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 Yeah. Salt. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. Carl, you are one of the only people that I know 
who, when I say saltgrass, which is the name of this show, obviously, you actually know what the plant is. And I throw the scientific name at you. <laughs> yeah, go on. What is it? It's Testiclus testiclophila. Wow. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, testicus is a botanical term, so I'd have to draw you a diagram, but it's a certain arrangement of the leaves. Yep. It's kind of a very neat arrangement. So if you've looked at the plant online, you might have seen that very neat way the, the leaves are lined up, and mm-hmm. that's testicus. Yeah, cool. So yeah, testicophila. Stick a filler. Yeah. And so filler means leaf, like f- foliage? Or? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm not that great with my Latin, but I, yeah. I know, no, you I know, know that much? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know a little bit because yeah, yeah. you're an ecologist and yeah. you know a lot of plants exactly. and their yeah. botanical names. Yeah. Great. So, what do you know about this plant? Because even Google searching it, I can hardly find anything. I do know there's an Australian variety of it and it is quite good in salty environments, which I guess is why it's called saltgrass. Yep. So maybe if you tasted it, it would taste salty because it actually draws the salt out of the soil and holds it. I don't know. I'm making that up. I don't know that, if that's true. What do you know about yeah. the plant? <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure if I had a chew on this one, but I don't think it has the saltiness. Like it's not herby enough for that. But yeah, that's the key feature of this grass is it's you find it in really salt, salt-affected environments and habitats. So that might be coastal salt marsh. So if you're right down on the coast, there's a range of places you'll find it. And it's rhizomatous, so if you don't know what that means, it's a lot of plants have these underground storage organs, particularly grasses, where they'll kind of send up shoots from this underground network. So if you know cooch, you probably <laughs> yes, do it from Castlemaine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that lovely thing that you dig out of your garden every And then five it comes minutes. back, it's yeah. like a zombie, it, yeah. it just doesn't die. Exactly, that one. Yeah. So it has a similar habit to that, a similar way of growing. And a lot of wetland plants, because this is actually a bit of a wetland plant too, it's in salty environments, but often near salty wetlands. So areas that get a bit damp and can get flooded. So a lot of wetland plants have this rhizomatous habit because what happens is if it gets flooded and, and the plant, the top of the plant might die off, it's a very convenient way of just growing back from these underground storage organs. So, so they're not um, roots, they're just underground storage organs. Yeah, they're kind of above the roots. Yeah. So if you imagine if you dig up cooch, it's got the roots and then it's got these like fleshy parts mm. which are the rhizomes and it sends off these little shoots that go underground and then it just pops up a little head exactly. a meter across even yeah. further away from where the original plant is exactly so yeah so you end up what you end up in the end is like a large patch of this thing we call this one australian salt grass so it's mostly on the coast but you'll get it right well not mostly on the coast you'll get it inland as well and it's also a bit of a coloniser, so you'll get it in a lot of country that's affected by salinisation. So that's it might, what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah. Salinisation has been a big problem in Australia, as farming practices and various other land management issues happen. We have this salt problem that arises, which is really hard to recover from, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's a major problem. It's really widespread, and particularly in the kind of a lot of the Murray Darling kind of basin area where there's a lot of irrigation. So if you go up towards northern Victoria around, say, the Kerrang area, there's a lot of country that's been affected by salinisation and there's a lot of these kind of salt marsh communities that have developed, which probably wouldn't have really been there naturally. There would have been some natural salt marsh because there would have been areas where groundwater did outcrop. But now that the whole groundwater has risen, you get a lot more salt. And so the groundwater rising is part of the issue, isn't it? That's what brings the salt to the surface. Is that exactly, right? yeah. So yeah. essentially clearance of all the trees, so you're not as much drawing up the water and, and using that, as well as just the, the whole groundwater rising you know, many metres because of so much water being poured onto the land. So, yeah. 
Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And and so then the salt then stays at the surface level, which then makes the soil uninhabitable for a lot of other plants. Is yeah, that right? So, yeah, so you get a lot of country where, you know, trees will die back, you know, can kill red gums, black box, all that through a lot of that country. And the whole understory will change. So you might have had kind of a lot of freshwater plants or certain kind of plant community, and that can get completely replaced by these salt plants. And you know, there's a lot of kind of more succulent salt plants you get nearby to where you might get salt grass. But yeah, salt grass is one of the plants when you go head up to some of that salt country around, say, Kerrang and Northern Victoria, you you can find Australian salt grass around. And it's actually, you know, it's doing a good thing because now that the saltiness has happened, you want something growing there. So it's good that there are some native plants that can adapt and grow in those areas. So it's kind of colonising areas where it might not have been once, but it's still, yeah, holding things together and playing a role. So yeah. that there's not complete erosion. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you'd have erosion, you'd have no no plants, you know, not yeah. much for a food web, all that kind of thing. So you need to have some kind of plants. And it's better having... Lots of you know invasive weeds and things. So so the salt marsh communities you get inland, which and you do get plenty of natural. Just to emphasise, you get plenty of natural inland salt communities all the way through Australia. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of our groundwater, particularly when you get in more arid areas, is quite salty because of low rainfall. So over time, because you get salts blowing in over a thousand years from the from the ocean. It just accumulates, and if you're not having lots of fresh water kind of flushing the system, that's why a lot of Australia is quite salty. So where the groundwater outcrops, so a lot of northwest Victoria where you get outcropping of water. Like um, the salt lakes. Yeah, a lot of salt lakes. Yeah, cool, so with places, the pink salt. Yeah, pink salt. There's, place, there's a place called the Rock Plain, which is up near Hadley Lakes, um, up towards Mildura, you know, vast areas of, of natural uh, salt uh, salt lakes and amazing vegetation communities with these Plants that are you know, highly adapted to, to salt levels and that's where you're going to find Australian salt grass as well. So it's going to be along the coast in, in kind of salt marsh as well as, as inland. Wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah. yeah. And so does the salt grass help desalinize the landscape and help it rehabilitate so other plants can come back into that landscape or is it just actually existing there and stopping further damage through erosion and, and coexisting with other salt-tolerant sort of ecosystems sure look i don't think it's doing a major playing a major role in removing the salt there has been a lot of trials and some successful work using some larger salt bushes that can kind of have much deeper roots and they do drop the salt because they actually use it in their in their biology and so they're often growing these salt bushes and using those as fodder for for stock and there's ways of doing that because they, they, they bring salt in for stock, don't they? They bring salt licks in for cows because they need it. So if salt bushes can replace that stuff, it sounds like a great combination of... Yeah, I don't actually know much about the salt licks. I know that I think the, a lot of the salt bushes are actually quite nutritious. So I'm not sure if it's about giving the stock a salt hit, but just yeah, plenty of nitrogen in the leaves and they're actually quite nutritious. So they can use some of these salt bushes. And, and I don't know if you've ever tried, you can eat some of your local things like your berry salt bush or things like some of your local, well, they're not quite local to here, but a bit further north, there's some atroplex salt bush species, which you can eat the foliage and it tastes tastes okay. You can put it in salads. So Yeah. We, we bought a plant from Auntie Julie and Murnong Mummers from the local farmer's market. And she was saying that it's, I forget in which salt bush it was because we got a couple of varieties from them, but it's got sort of flat silver leaves. And she said, you know, you can just fry them and they taste like chips. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was it's like, delicious. that sounds yeah. great to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you can eat the berries as well. So they got, I think that's berry salt bush. It's got little, you know, quite these salty sweet berries as well. So, yeah. So they're actually more helpful at desalinizing the landscape. Uh, yeah, I think just some of those larger salt bushes are more better at getting that salt out of the ground and, and then you can feed to the stock and you're actually removing it from the system. I think 
Australian saltgrass, it's playing a great role, but I just don't think it's removing salt from the system as much. Maybe on a, in, a, in a minor way, but it's yeah, it's not a, not a huge game changer. I but suppose. it's holding things I don't, together. I don't like yeah. No, talk don't it up, don't talk pl- it up too much. Don't like, play down my plant though. <laughs> <laughs> it's saving the world, this thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, it's holding things together yeah. until yeah. some bigger things can move in and do some, <laughs> do some yeah. better rehabilitation. Yeah, so I guess for me that plant, when I moved out here to Castlemaine and I have this garden that is covered in cooch. Yep. And is cooch a native plant to Australia? There are some native cooches, but not the one that we get all over not Castlemaine. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. It's, but there's a very similar one that we actually get along the Murray River uh, on the floodplains. Looks kind of similar, doesn't grow as kind of prolifically. So, yeah, so there are some really close related things. Because yeah. this cooch is like a nightmare. It just grows yeah. everywhere yep. and no matter how much you weed it, it still comes back yep. again. Yep. But I got to a certain point of just having a huge amount of respect for it because I'm like, this plant... <laughs> this yeah. plant's going to survive the apocalypse. Like, yeah. nothing can kill this plant. Yeah. And so... I feel like if saltgrass is a relative of that, I see that as a good symbol of just resilience and being able to just exist in difficult environments, which yeah. ultimately with climate change, a lot of us, like we are going to have to adapt to harsher environments and very difficult conditions. Definitely. Yeah. And we're going to have to be low to the ground and know how to survive, you know, wherever we land. And and it's I, I just... I've always enjoyed that as a as a kind of a metaphor of something that's like really tough and resilient, stays there and does its thing. Yeah. No matter how much you try yeah, and yeah. yank it out, you yeah, can't totally. get rid of these grassroots movements. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. No, yeah. I think saltgrass is going to be around for a long time. It's very resilient. It's got that you know that really thick growth growth habit, the deep rhizomes, and it can handle drier soils. And like I said, it's a pioneer as well. It's a pioneer moving in and, and creating new communities too. So. Yeah, and so ultimately it might be the first plant to to go back to a place that's become quite arid. Or salty. Or yeah. salty. Yeah. But once it's established itself, it allows other things to move in and, and start establishing as well. Yeah, they'll be mostly part of that same salt community, which might not have been there, but yeah, you'll get a, a small range of salty plants, like native salty plants, which will start moving in. So yeah, it's definitely playing a role, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So tell me how you know all about this. Can I ask you a few questions about yeah, yeah. you? I know that you do some ecology work, Something, but yep. tell, me, <laughs> tell, me, tell yep. me, you know, a bit about yourself and, and how, how come you know all this stuff? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I have my own consultancy, my own business I've been doing for, I'll be in my own business for about seven years, but I've been doing ecology for about 15 or so. I didn't go to uni. I, I did some did a diploma course for a couple of years, but I didn't go to university. I mostly just hung out with a lot of elders who knew lots of stuff because if you got to learn all your plants and animals, you've got to spend so much time in the bush just like mm. asking people questions and hearing all your bird calls and really getting lots of experience. And that's I did lots of volunteering in the early days. Now I've got my consultancy and I do lots of survey, mostly around all parts of Victoria. So I travel quite a bit for work, lots of monitoring, lots of yeah, lots of survey to try and in inventories, that kind of thing. So inventories of flora and fauna, like what, yeah. what is living in that environment yeah, that you get called out to look at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Lots, of, But also, you know, I'm really keen on not just monitoring stuff and monitoring decline, but doing lots of activism and conservation work. We've done some really good local projects on the Eltham Copper Butterfly recently where we've just helped to do some survey to try and find out where they were because, unfortunately... The uh, government departments were really set on just burning all their habitats. We had to go out there and find where they were. So we got a grant and did some survey. And yeah, that's been really effective to try and save that species. I've done an interview with Harley Douglas in a previous episode. So we talked a little bit about the elf and copper butterfly in that episode. But you sort of really tried to develop a, a sense of community ownership over it 
to help connect people to it and understand why it's important because it's a relatively rare creature, isn't it? The, and, the elephant copper. Yeah, 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 extremely. It's um, only known for about four separate areas of Victoria. So you get around kind of Eltham, like northern Melbourne, at a few places, and then it's Castlemaine, Bendigo, and Kyoto, which is out near the Little Desert. And we're about to do some survey at Kyoto this year and the Little Desert because no one's no one's gone out there to really look for them for ten years or yeah. even longer. We don't even know if they're still there. So, yeah, that kind of stuff's pretty important. And, and they don't um, migrate or anything. They just sort of have a life cycle in a particular place. They can migrate, but it seems to be pretty short dispersal because they've got this really, you probably talked about that, this obligate relationship with a sweet bacteria plant. I'm not sure if you talked about it with Harley, but it's very specific. And this, and the ant, it needs to have this specific species of ant. So yeah. can't just lay its eggs everywhere. It needs to have this ant and this whole quite an intricate relationship with the ant. But you really need to protect a whole ecosystem to protect that butterfly. Exactly. It's like, yeah, and it's a lot of that, the same story with a lot of our species. You've got to protect the whole community. You know, there's things like orchids, which have, you know, pollinators and you need the pollinator and the pollinator might need a whole lot of other plants in its community. So if you lose the other plants, then you lose the pollinator and then you lose the orchids. So it's about, yeah, protecting the whole range, not just yeah. that, that thing. Yeah. And isn't that just the story of our times? I think we, we, we live in such a world of like individualism and isolated cases of things where we try and think that every individual thing has its own siloed existence, but actually everything's so interconnected and we just forget that. Yeah, I mean, the concept of species is a human construct. Like there's actually a continuum between all the life forms and we're you know putting them in these little boxes and taxonomy is constantly changing its mind because it's just a, a human idea. But So, That's yeah, there is this, there's a flow of energy between all life forms and all species. So, yeah, it's could not just get kind of focused on one thing or one yeah. species because there is that flow. So yeah. yeah, that's amazing. That's nicely said. And so tell me a bit about the Eltham Copper Butterfly Festival that you started or you were part of and, and why that was initiated. Yeah, sure. Well, that was so Vanessa Case, that was her big project. Mm-hmm. And I helped out. I actually first got in contact with Vanessa because we'd had the ideas independently. I wanted to have a bit of a festival at Klimna Park, which I've still keen on having something going up there maybe a different kind of event so anyway she had this separate idea and it was hers it was a bit more arty because she's an artist and she's a dancer and she i wanted to do stuff with with kids in schools so yeah i had some involvement just i mean vanessa did the the vast majority of that but i helped to do some came to the schools one day and did some education with the kids and on the day of the festival were you there on the festival the oh, i day? came for a little bit at yeah, the yeah. End. so we did a couple of walks and just took them up because it was at the Picassamane Botanical Gardens and we went up the hill where the butterflies are and we just showed people the habitat and showed them and yeah and then down on the in the park they had the lovely dancers and so I think she had uh yeah the kids doing this amazing dance it demonstrated the the relationship between the ant and the butterfly and all this this kind of cool stuff and that sounds great yeah and there was lots of art activities and beautiful music so yeah yeah so I mean she. I think she'd love to do it again, but it was so much, yeah, it's such a huge job and almost need a whole <laughs> whole committee to kind of, oh, you know, it's of such a huge thing to run That's a festival. That's a big event. Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah, but uh, yeah, it was great fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think. It seemed very more. successful. There were so many people there. Yeah, yeah. And was, so, I mean, Casamine Botanical Gardens, for those who don't know, is this beautiful flat zone with a lake or two and it's about 5K circuit around the edge of the bottom part of the gardens. And most people, that's where you'd walk your dog and there's a tea rooms there so you can hire that out and have an event. And there's 
grassy bits and there's trees that were planted when Castlemaine was first settled and they're ginormous sort of European varieties of trees and things now. They're very impressive and it's amazing that they've survived in this environment for this long. Um, But across the creek and up the hill, there's a much more bushy, wild part of the gardens, which a lot of people don't take the time to explore. It's got some quite steep tracks and it's not as well formed, all of that stuff. But it's actually a really beautiful spot. Yeah. And that's where I've noticed a little fenced off bit, but it seems quite small. Is that what you've got to protect the butterfly. So that's one of the known places. And that was Mm. where they thought the Eltham copper was extinct in the 1980s. And then they rediscovered at Eltham. And then that year they did these statewide surveys. And a fellow called David Crosby came up to Castlemaine to the back of the gardens there. And I think it was really just out the back of town. Like no one went out there back then. And he rediscovered it in Castlemaine as well. So we've got it there, but we've also got it at Klimna Park where Harley was doing his project. That's where we've got a big population. We're also going to survey up around kind of around the Monk, if you know where the Monk is, kind of it's more like south of town, out towards Spring Gully Road area. We're going to survey that this year because there's some populations. And that, so that's more bush, isn't it? Like that's proper bush. Yeah, there's yeah, it's yeah. um, it's all in the in the diggings park, the Casamayan yeah. Diggings Heritage Park. Because like the botanic gardens, you've got the hospital on one side and the botanic gardens on the other side, and houses over there and houses over there and the pub just there. Yeah. So for other areas to be more actually ensconced in proper bushland is it feels more protected. Just yeah, like I've got some concern about the botanical garden site because we've monitored the last two years and the numbers aren't great. They can they can hang on these small reserves. So in Eltham where I've monitored the species, the it's, it's it's almost ridiculous. You get these little reserves and they're just surrounded by high-density residential houses and swimming pools and all that kind of thing. And But the butterfly is still hanging on and they're doing you know reasonably well. But there's this huge issue of like they can't disperse and there's not much genetic interchange between populations and inbreeding and all that kind of thing. So they so, get really isolated in their small community and yeah, then it's yeah, inbred. Yeah. So for a while it was all about focus on the Melbourne populations and then they started realising that towards between Castlemaine and Bendigo we have like thousands of hectares of potential habitat. So that's why we're trying to, with Elaine Bays, um, the two of us have been doing some work just trying to yeah, survey these vast areas to find out where the butterflies were. So Klimna Park, we had a survey of about 200 hectares. You know, it was quite a... So what are um, you looking for? So we first of all, we mapped where the Basaria was. Do people know about the, the, the relationship or have you well, talked about Well, maybe explain that? it again. I yeah. think Harley did talk about yeah. it in the yeah. previous episode, but people may not have heard that episode. So if you explain the relationship sure. and what's required for the butterfly, that'd be great. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I, there's a lot of butterflies that have this relationship, but this uh, people get very fascinated by the Eltham Copper and it's a bit of a flagship because it does this thing where it needs this particular ant, which is called Natonchus ant. Natonchus means big head, apparently, in Latin. It's got quite a large head. <laughs> and it lives at the base, often has these colonies at the base of a sweet basaria plant. So if you know sweet basaria, it's in the, I don't know if you know Potosporum, it's in the same family, but it's a beautiful flowering plant. It's quite spiny. So is it more like, would it look like a bush or is it a tree? Well, that's a good question because it's a quite varied depending where it is. I've gone to, you know, Tasmania and some of the Bass Strait Islands. It's this huge you know thick trunked tree that can grow up to you know 15 10 15 meters our local form is almost this little scrambly shrub it's a much more just depending on how dry it is how much rainfall and fertile the soils are but the elfin copper only likes it it likes the kind of small scrambly form it doesn't like the tall tree form so but it's still locally it's a beautiful yeah it gets lots of um these white really nectar rich flowers so it's covered in lots of insects so the ants like the flowers 
So what happens is the butterfly lands. <laughs> it's, it's more complex. Wait for it. Wait for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'll get to the, the punchline. Okay, great. <laughs> so the butterfly lands, pretty much lays its eggs at the base of the of where the nest is. Sorry, where the ant nest is. Yeah, pretty much lay like within centimeters of where the ants are. And they all start carrying on. And there's a bit of communication happening between the butterfly and the ant. The ant will come up and actually take the eggs down into the nest. And then the caterpillars hatch in the nest. and They live down there and they're protected by the ants during the day. And then you get to go, the cool thing is if you go out at um, night around springtime, you can watch the caterpillars, they only come out at night and they feed on the foliage of the sweetbiss area and the ants follow them. So they swarm all over the, the caterpillars back and the caterpillars, what they're doing is they're executing this uh, secretion on their back, which is quite sugary, like it's uh, a sugary kind of reward for the ants. So they're kind of feeding on that and, and just attending to the ants. And there's a bit of theory they might be stopping kind of fungal inf- infections by doing that as well, because otherwise uh, all the sugars and things, the caterpillars might get you know, infections. So they're kind of like just looking after the ants and so looking af- after the caterpillars. And But there'd be no reason for the caterpillar to excrete sugary substance unless it had a relationship with the ants. Well, that's the theory is that it's, it's like a reward thing. It's yeah. like, yeah, I mean, they might need to excrete it in some way. Just so do you reckon all, when um, the butterflies land and lay their eggs, they're like, you guys remember, if you take care of these eggs, in a few months you'll have these caterpillars. You'll have yeah. endless sugar, guys. You should just take care of these eggs. Just yeah, this is, this is, this is a gold mine. It's like, yeah, yeah, totally. You know the deal, yeah. right? It's just a walking... Did your grandpa tell you the deal? It's that's been right. a while. It's a walking bag of sugar. It's yeah, great. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, it's pretty cool. So they look after them, attend to them, and uh, if there's any spiders or wasps or things trying to attack the, the larvae, then the idea is the ants probably protect them from that. So then eventually yeah, the, the, the butterfly emerges as a butterfly and uh, yeah, it'll feed on Berseria flowers. So, you know, the, the caterpillars eat the leaves and then the adults might feed on the flowers to some degree. Yeah, so it's a pretty cool story. That's why you need the, this specific plant and specific ant. And if you lose either, and I know a site in Eltham where the ants have disappeared and yeah, so the butterflies disappeared too. So you need, you need them both there. So. And I guess in highly urban environments, you're much more likely to have humans using ant red or some other thing or a pesticide on their garden that drifts across or, yeah, you know. Yeah, well, unfortunately I see that a lot. You know, even down the res one day I saw someone had poisoned the meat ant nest and it's pretty sad. There's a bit of a correlation between humans and, you know, once you get higher density residential land, you tend to get more of these disturbances. And like you said, people don't want the ants and things. If they don't understand the value of the ants in the ecosystem, they just go, oh, these ants are a pain. I don't want to have to walk across them. Therefore, I'll kill them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I suppose they are, they are quite a small ant that don't tend to kind of, they're not going into people's houses and kind of coming across humans as much. But yeah, there's many ways that humans could impact them. The saddest story I heard was in Montmorency, which is near Eltham, north of Melbourne again, where there was a population of elephant copper and there was an expert studying them on his property and some chickens got in from the next door neighbor and found the caterpillars. So it was like... Peck, 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 yeah, yeah, delicious just, yeah, lunch. Yeah, totally. Aww. So, yeah, so I think the more of those, once you start getting the bush being disturbed and, and kind of altered that way, you do get more of this, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. But that's why we're lucky up here. We've got like Kalimna Park and out towards the Monk where it's just, you know, hundreds of hectares of habitat. And yeah. is it the sort of thing where if you wanted to create habitat for the butterflies, you would plant the plant and then bring out the ants and try and establish a colony of ants and then bring out some butterflies? Yeah, great question because we have done that in Eltham. There was some plants planted and we actually had the ants do that. They colonised a planted plant within within 12 months, I think. Spontaneously or did you put the ants there? No, the ants were in the reserve. They were already in the reserve, but we planted the, the plants nearby and then expanded the habitat. It's The ants are, like I said, they're not 
something that move around a lot. So I think if you, it's you're not going to just get the ant. People have asked me a lot, can I just plant this in my garden? I'll get off them coppers. It's not that easy. I think you know the ants are more restricted. And I suppose like bees, they probably have to wait for the queen and set up a colony. There's there's ways that the ants would move a colony or start new colonies that you'd have to know that life cycle. Yeah. To know how to get them to inhabit a place. I know that I think the um, Melbourne Museum actually wanted to have this species in their captivity and they were I mean they they approached someone I was uh, working with at the time years ago because we were working the Eltham Copper and they said can you get us an air colony somehow we were coming up with these ideas like we, we tried planting Berseria in this kind of cage system and we we're going to plant that and then get the ants to go in there and then like pull it out but it just yeah it was so didn't work I'm sure someone could figure it out but we we haven't figured it out but so at the where I did a management plan for the uh, botanical gardens reserve last year I recommended having a lot of planting of Berseria in some of the more degraded areas so that you might you might not be able to kind of plant Berseria in your house and get Eltham coppers but even locally where they are just expanding because if it's just close enough to the the ant colony they'll self-populate to the next bit along yeah because even having like say in that botanical gardens reserve the the Berseria's dropped out at some places so we need to make sure we have enough across the whole reserve that they can actually yeah they can keep expanding and thriving hopefully yeah, whenever I hear about this sort of complexity of knowledge about the interrelated relationships between plants and animals and all this stuff, I always just think about how much knowledge the Indigenous elders held about the landscape Yeah, and how much that just was not understood by white colonists and invaders yeah. and just completely disregarded. And now we're just like someone once upon a time probably knew that. Yeah. <laughs> How the ants, you know, there, there would have been a whole story about it and now we don't know. Well, I mean, people talk, call me an ecologist. I stand out as being someone who knows about ecology, but I think most indigenous people, they were all ecologists. Like they all like, yeah. they lived on the land and they were just, they were connected and they kind of, yeah. And those they, relationships they, were just understood between yeah. ant, uh, plant, animal and, yeah. you know, everything else. And they had totally different ways of seeing the world as well. Like it wasn't always, like I was talking about taxonomy before, it's a human system and we kind of group things in certain ways. They would have had other ways of grouping it from what I've heard. Different ways of, you know, how you would group something it might be more on relationship rather than how its genes are. You know, it's like it's a yeah, yeah, yeah. whole, whole different, yeah, different yeah. way of seeing things. So. Yeah. As often happens when I interview people, it's after we've said all of the things we'd planned to talk about and just sit there for a bit that an interesting new idea emerges as we stumble around wondering if there's anything else left to say. This was one of those occasions. Enough. Is there anything else you want to say? Yeah, enough about saltgrass. Yeah. Oh, is there more? Well, that's like I said, it's not, it's not a plant I can talk about for hours. Like- I liked that it's a pioneer plant and... You know, a stabiliser. And it's interesting. I, I think it is interesting, that idea that I think there's this sense that, oh, we can just rehabilitate that, you know. like, And I think we see this here in the goldfields is like the local Indigenous people, the Jajaran, call it upside down country because yeah. Yeah. the gold mining here was so extensive that all the trees got cleared. Like you can see pictures from the 1800s where it's just mud fields yeah, totally. for, for kilometres and kilometres and yeah. all the good topsoil got discarded because they weren't interested in that they're interested in the gold down below and and there's this idea kind of like oh it doesn't matter what we do we can just replant stuff it'll be fine but actually some damage is irreparable or very 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 difficult to repair and you might get species like saltgrass making the best of it (laughs) and they're they're existing and they're sort of you know stabilizing the ground and holding it together but it's not 
the same as it was and it may not ever be the same as it was. No, and I think, you know, over my career I've become to accept that a lot of people are this mindset of trying to restore what was there in 1750 before whitefellas came and I think that's that's not how ecosystems work. You know, it's just it's we can't get back to that because the whole landscape's changed, all the processes have changed. It's a completely different world. So there's a term called novel ecosystems, which is often, an, that's where it's it's become something very different from pre-European, but it's still really functional. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a lot of really amazing novel ecosystems around here. Like some of the hills are quite intact, but some areas where yeah, it's very different to what it was, but it's still plenty of value. But it's about kind of thinking that ecosystems always change over time. They've been through massive upheaval through ice ages and all kinds of things over the time. So we're probably the biggest change in 60 million years, but but uh, there's... Um, there's <laughs> and yeah, climate some, change will exactly. do even more than that. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to yeah. see a lot of changes. And I think in some ways have to... I think pre-1750 is a great guide because it's, you know, that was a, a peak of diversity in, in terms of what we've seen and uh, trying to get back to that in some way, but also just recognizing it's a, you know, we've got different fire regimes, different climate different soil profiles like I do a lot of stuff with Castlemaine Landcare along Forest Creek and I mean we couldn't put part back most of the original species because like you said it's it's up to, upside down now it's just pretty much gravel and there's no it would have had some lovely soil Clay through and there shale and, yeah, yeah yeah so you know it used to have this lovely kind of colluvial alluvial soils through that valley and that's mostly all washed down to down the Lon River somewhere or probably the Murray so <laughs> yeah. so um yeah so you just got to recognize that and maybe adapt a bit there's a whole kind of can of worms people talking about now the climate change do we start planting you know find what the analog is for say Castlemaine and you know what it'll be like find a town that we know the climate's going to be like three degrees warmer yeah than yeah Castlemaine yeah and, and plant like, now for yeah, 20 years time which is yeah and that's kind of we're moving towards that and it's a lot of contention around that and I can see why but because you know you're talking about something that might be three four hundred k's away like planting that or even further like in really arid ecosystems we start just planting salt bushes everywhere mm. I tend to think that will happen itself and I don't, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really tricky one though. And we're trying to mix up gene pools a bit though when we're doing revegetation now because rather than, we used to have this idea of being really specific about only plant something that's within say 10 kilometer range to keep the genetic viability, like the genes that have developed in a certain area over time, try and retain that. But now it's like, well, we know we need more genetic diversity and probably need possibly need gene pools from drier landscapes. So Damien Cook, who's been doing lots of red gum plantings of red gum woodlands out in northern Victoria, has been experimenting with getting some red gums, just getting like some of the plants he puts back, getting some that are from, from more ar- from arid, yeah, yeah, further north, more arid areas, and just kind of mixing the gene pool up and mm. and mixing that up. So there's and more. even if you just have a couple of them, they could be the start of what's necessary in twenty years' time. Yeah, and that, that'll, it'll, it'll interbreed and it might have the other kind of those drought tolerant genes will kind of be inter, interbred with the, the population. But it, yeah, it's a it's a huge question really about mm. how you how do you what do you restore now when we know it's changed so much and also we know the changes that are happening with climate change. I think a lot of those changes will happen naturally as they always have. But yeah, well, we can start thinking more smartly about how to do revegetation and, um, and yeah. stop yearning for yesteryear and trying to make things exactly as they used to be. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, especially with climate change, it's never yeah. going to be that again. Like, yeah. Yeah. like even if yeah. we stop emissions right now and do lots of drawdown, we're yeah. still going to see a certain amount of global warming. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just not going to. 
Yeah, there's, I don't want to get all gloomy, but yeah, there's this thing called extinction debt. You know, it's talked about, yeah, like if we were the, we suddenly became the best citizens of the real world right now and did everything right, there's this debt we have because there's a lag in terms of how ecosystems work. So we'd still And how carbon continue. exists in the atmosphere as well. Yeah, it takes time. There's takes, that lag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like 50 to 100 years worth of, like it takes that long for it to get reabsorbed through. Yeah. 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 But I mean, just trying to be positive. We have been through major ice ages where the climate was very extreme, arid and dry. And we've been through, you know, if you thought about the volcanic plains, pretty much, you know, about, starting about 5 million years ago, some volcanoes started erupting across and blanketed a third of Victoria. You know, it would have been pretty desolate. Like there was some beautiful stuff underneath of that lava. Like there's a lot of change that happens. I'm not trying to say climate change is a good thing, but just trying to be a bit positive about yeah. it, It's kind of ecologies. It actually is an evolving system. It's not this static pre pre-whitefella thing so yeah and it's not um, a garden that we can just control either i think humans enjoy the idea of a garden (laughs) where we get to choose what grows where and we don't like the weeds but we do like the pretty things and the things that we can eat but actually the world is a wilder more turbulent kind of like system than that i guess yeah it's tricky because i think when we step into a system we change it in some way so it's Mm, like it is good to yeah. yeah so we kind of do become gardeners in a way like we are part of the system so just depends on and we have this very conscious way of being in the world so we can actually choose and we're quite mobile and we can do stuff so it's choosing almost can become creators of what do we want to put here and not many animals can do that <laughs> it's like, no that's true so, but then it becomes this debate of well what should you do and how yeah. should you manage it what's the then, ethical implications yeah. of that yeah, yeah 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 definitely so and who gets to choose is the other question <laughs> like who the hell gets to make that decision for all of the species exactly but i mean i i mean for me the big things i want to work on the next few years is you know try to stop logging a native forest because that just should not continue. It's just ridiculous. We're still cutting down old growth forests. Apparently but, Australia is one of the biggest logging countries in the world. Yeah. Now. Yeah. it's And it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I've been involved in some of the surveys and it's like there's, there's endangered species there and all kinds of things. Yeah. We can talk about the climate changing and everything changing and how change is a part of the natural world, but it doesn't mean we should just destroy what's there. No, because I mean, you know, people are saying, what should we do about climate change? And it's like, well, there's all these great things to do. But first of all, can we stop? Can we, can we stop <laughs> we, destroying? Like, what, are we, what are we doing that for? It's like, yeah. you know, and everyone knows it's, you know, it's a loss-making industry. It's just, it's corruption. And yeah, it just doesn't make any sense from what I see. So yeah, if we could do that kind of, and also a lot of the um, kind of out of control burning, cultural burning, I'm a huge fan of, and this kind of smaller scale burning for cultural reasons and for ecology reasons, but a lot of this vast burning of areas just to kind of, make it seem like we're doing something to reduce fire risk when often it's not and uh, we've seen a lot of species going extinct from that process so yeah Yeah. there's just things we've got to keep working on Uh, yeah they call it fuel reduction burning don't they yeah and that's a whole other topic but uh, you know there's some science saying that if you do that within a certain vicinity of houses it definitely works but burning out the middle of the bush it doesn't you know if you do it every three years maybe but it's not achievable and there's other things we can do to reduce our risk to fire so and it's having a huge impact on our forest um and the, the idea that the Australian bush is evolved to handle fire is also a myth because, well, it's not a myth, it's true, but it's it's evolved to handle fire as managed by Indigenous cultural burns, yeah. not this current way of doing it. Yeah, well, let's go back to that question again about this isn't pre-750, this is a different a different ecosystem. So what they were burning was so different and I imagine a lot of their burning would have been concentrated on the more fertile grassy plains which we've turned into kind of agriculture now and uh, where our towns are, whereas a lot of the areas where our bushland reserves are was probably the less fertile country. Well, they would have done some burning, but 
But it's such a changed system there now where there's all these things to consider we didn't have then. Like there's there's weeds to consider, there's the loss of old trees and hollows, which, you know, you put these fires through and you lose your hollow-bearing trees. Yeah, which is um, habitat for birds and, and other things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so hollows are essential for a lot of our native animals, uh, yeah. particularly some ma- mammals. And, yeah, mammals. Yeah. Um, there's something called the brush-tailed fascagal, one of our local threatened species, a, a mammal. A whole bunch of birds, They our species, they actually depend on having certain hollows of a certain size actually breed and survive so and a lot of forests as you're saying they were cut down so we don't have a lot of those hollows left and when they put these burns through they tend to lose the trees from burning out so yeah there's a lot we can do and keep fighting for and i think it's always you've got to stay positive and you know getting really negative and, and hateful doesn't help anything i think but it can be hard because it's, it's heartbreaking but you've got to just yeah. try and work on these things while still staying positive because i, I think especially as an ecologist i imagine it's more heartbreaking for you because you actually know what's being sacrificed when these decisions are made at a sort of political level. Whereas other people will be like, don't take the forest away, it's pretty. You're like, no, but what about that species and that species and that yeah. species? Yeah, we used to call it ecological depression. We'd have it on, on some of our field trips where you go to an area like, you know, on the Murray where that just hadn't been flooded for years and things are dying. It was just... You, you knew so much of what was being lost and it was it was kind of hard. But, but there's so many positive stories out there. I don't want to be all negative. Like there's some great things happening, amazing restoration and regeneration happening. Like the land cares of the Castlemaine, Castlemaine region's got one of the highest density of land care groups, I think, in Australia. It's, it's incredible. The amount of different groups that are working on things, doing projects. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. if, if people listening wanted to get involved even in a small way, a land care group is a great way to to actually contribute and be guided by people who know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like, so, yeah, if you live in the Castlemaine area, there's the Campbell's Creek Land Care Group. There's the Castlemaine Land Care Group, which is more on Forest Creek. There's those groups out at Harcourt. They're kind of all over. You, know, you could contact Connecting Country if you want to. They're a good guide for finding out what's in your patch. Yeah, and you go along to these events and you're kind of uh, not as fun at the moment with just like everything because COVID. the whole COVID, COVID thing. But, uh, uh-huh. yeah, you know, generally you go along to a planting and usually have a cup of tea and meet great people. And, yeah, it's great for kids most of the time when they're not, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> getting into trouble. Yeah, that's right. We're not... <laughs> My son's always happy digging holes, but yeah. yeah. So. Don't dig that <laughs> hole. Oh. <laughs> always I'm digging out a plant. I went no. for a bike ride along Happy Valley Track yeah. one day and I saw a bunch of people and a table set out and yeah. an urn of tea and biscuits and they're yeah, all yeah. standing around chatting and yeah, having yeah. a nice time. And I stopped because I knew one of them and I was like, what's going on? This looks yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, it's a local land care group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're really nice events, you know, especially when the weather's nice and things in spring. It's a beautiful thing to do and yeah, a positive way of giving back and just to seeing like what's happened along say forest creek i've looked at i've only been up here over 10 years but looking at photos from the even the early 2000s or the late 90s and there was pretty much because of the dredging that used to happen along there there was just there was just nothing it was just gorse and and now you go along forest creek and it's just beautiful there's so many woodlands been restored and lots of interesting birds and yeah so it's it's pretty inspiring to see yeah they, like i said it's not all doom and gloom there's some amazing things happening so takes a bit of effort though you know, it's a shame that we have to put that effort in, but you know, it's better to yeah. do it and and to have avenues of doing that than than falling into the despair of we're all screwed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're talking <laughs> before about the you know the carbon tax and back when that was functioning for a few years, like the amount of money that started flowing to these connecting countries to get a lot of money to do some really grand schemes. Lots you know, of planting, heaps of planting, direct seeding. They had a whole bush crew. So unfortunately, when they axed the carbon tax, a lot of that money disappeared. And now we just kind of occasionally, there's these little spikes in funding and grants. It'd be great if that was more 
ongoing, but I suppose, yeah, if people just keep supporting and, and making it clear that that's what they want, everyone's powerful and they can do their voting and support the environment and hopefully we'll get more <laughs> more funding funding rolling but yeah, yeah just yeah yeah there's huge potential so yeah and i suppose just having like there's so much interest out there i think feel like there's a disconnect between how much funding comes from the government compared to the amount of interest is there because you know most people like the majority don't support native logging they want action on climate change and there's this disconnect between <laughs> what people want and and what is actually happening but yeah just got to keep trying i suppose <laughs> So that was Carl Just, local ecologist, talking about what the plant salt grass is and also eltham copper butterflies and the nature of nature. There are a couple of links to the things discussed in today's show at saltgrasspodcast.com. For those of you listening on Main FM or 3MDR, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcasting app. If you can't find Saltgrass on your podcasting app, please let me know and we'll see what we can do to make it available there. You can go to saltgrasspodcast.com to find out how to contact me. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, salt, of the earth, grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.